John chapter 9. If you would, please turn there in your Bibles. Continuing our series on the gospel according to John, and this morning we come to the ninth chapter of this account. I invite you, if you're able and willing, to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 9, we will read all 41 verses. Hear the word of the Lord. As he, he being Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how are your eyes opened? And he answered, The man called Jesus, made mud, and anointed my eyes, and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was, the, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say is born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. 
We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind, and if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. So ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, infallible, authoritative word. Can you believe that God has given us his word so that we might know him? Amen. You may take your seats, please. Rachel Wilson is a young mother who, with her husband Andrew, is following the Lord in the midst of a very difficult providence. Rachel Wilson has two small children, both of whom have significant special needs. And one day, Rachel was uh, reading the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. And if you know the Beatitudes, you know that that's where Jesus really shows the the true nature of his upside-down kingdom with his statements about what true blessedness really is. And as Rachel was meditating and and praying on the Beatitudes, she began to to journal, and she wrote down uh, what she ended up calling the special needs Beatitudes. These obviously are not Scripture, but they reflect something of Jesus' heart for those who are weak, and particularly those who have disabilities. Blessed are the autistic, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the tube-fed, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the nonverbal, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the hyperactive, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the wheelchair-bound, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are those with mental health issues, for they shall see God. Blessed are those in regression, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who cannot communicate or understand, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In the Gospels, everywhere Jesus goes, he opposes and confounds the proud and the wise and the religious. And he confers dignity and humanity and hope on the humble, the weak, and the suffering. And he often does this by performing miracles, signs that point to his divinity and his mission. John chapters 2 through 11 are are often called the book of signs. It's a collected 
uh, grouping of Jesus' miracles, his turning of water into wine, his many healings that we've seen as we've walked through John's gospel. And with each one of these signs that Jesus performs, he's revealing something about himself. He's revealing a world-changing reality that comes when Jesus steps into the world. The king is present in power. And his upside-down kingdom is, is breaking in. It's making all things new. He's restoring what's broken in the world and in people because of sin. And when Jesus performs these signs, it indicts us and it invites us. His signs indict our wrong views of what flourishing really is and our love for the kingdom of this world. And they invite us to come to Jesus and to his kingdom to receive the life he gives, the life that is truly life. And these signs that Jesus performs, they demand a response. They demanded a response in the people who witnessed them in the first century, and they demand a response from us today when we see them. In these 41 verses, we have a narrative that portrays uh, profoundly Jesus' identity and mission, and there's three invitations to respond, at least, that I see in this text that we're going to consider together as we walk through it. Invitation number one, let Jesus reinterpret your suffering. Invitation number two, respond rightly to the Word and the works of God. And number three, turn from the pride that blinds. Number one, let Jesus reinterpret your suffering. As we come out of chapter 8, we know Jesus has just concluded his altercation with the Pharisees. He has hidden himself and escaped from the temple as they were picking up stones to kill him. And we hear in verse 1 that as he exited the temple, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And we must know, blindness in the first century is very different than blindness in our day. To be blind in the first century was a desperate situation. It meant to be a societal outcast. There were no social programs to provide support and help and assistance to blind people. And blind men and women were consigned to a life of begging for mercy, depending on the kindness and generosity of strangers. It was a desperate place to be. No one saw this man. No one cared about him. But Jesus saw him. The immensity of this simple statement just knocked me over this week as I studied. The blind man doesn't see Jesus, but Jesus sees him. He sees him in his pain. He sees him in his shame. He sees him in his helplessness and in his need. He sees that this man has nothing to offer Jesus, but that's perfect because Jesus needs nothing from this man. Jesus needs nothing from you or from me either. You see, this is the portrait, the pattern of the gospel that runs through John and through all of Scripture. It's the pattern of the gospel. It's God's grace not recoiling at our helplessness, but instead moving toward it. It's Jesus not smirking or shaking his head or wagging his finger at our desperation, but embracing us and loving us in the midst of our desperation. It's the gospel. Jesus is not looking for the best and the brightest. He just left the best and the brightest in the temple. They were trying to murder him. No, no, Jesus is looking for the broken and the needy. 
And I wonder this morning with which group we identify ourselves. Which group are you in? Verse 2. His disciples ask him a question. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And we should be leaning forward to hear what Jesus has to say to this. Because they're asking a question many of us ask in the midst of our own suffering. As we watch people close to us suffer, as we watch our children suffer. God, why? Why is this happening? And on, on one hand, there's a simplistic answer to this, and the answer is sin, right? We suffer and we die, and disease and decay exist in the world because of sin, because of Adam's sin, because of our sin, because of the world that is set in opposition and rebellion against the God who created us. But we need to think a level deeper here, because what the question is actually betraying is something a little bit more, a little bit nuanced. The truth from Scripture is that disease and death come from sin in general, but not always from sin in particular. Sometimes we do suffer because of our sin. There's a story in Numbers 12 where Miriam complains about Moses and the access that he has to God and the favored status he has before God. She grumbles and complains, and so God afflicts her with leprosy. She suffers as a result of her sin. Tonight, if you go out and drink to excess and get behind the wheel of your car and wrap it around a telephone pole and break your leg, guess what? You are suffering because of your sin. But there are many other times when we cannot connect those dots so neatly and simply. This is a part of the message of Job. It's, part of the, it's something that the disciples should have seen. They knew the book of Job. They knew their Old Testament better than we do. Job's friends come to him in his dark night of the soul when he is suffering under the weight of severe afflictions. And they say to him over and over again as the chapters of Job unfold, Job, if you hadn't sinned, you wouldn't be suffering the way that you do. Job maintains his innocence and they keep pushing on him. Job, you're suffering because of something that you did. And God comes and he speaks to Job's friends at the end of the book. And what does he say? He says, you have not spoken of me what is right. Specific suffering in most cases, as it cannot be traced to a specific instance of sin. And yet, it's the question our hearts ask when we suffer. God, why? Why is my child not flourishing? Why do I feel so anxious and afraid? Why can't I fix the relational gulf that's developed between me and my spouse? Why are we infertile? Why do I hate myself so much? Why am I so lonely and afraid? Jesus answered, verse 3, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. This is staggering. I wonder how that statement landed on the man who was born blind when he heard it. I wonder how it landed on the disciples when they heard it. And I wonder how it lands on you when you hear it. This man's life wasn't wrecked because of some 
sin he committed or some sin his parents committed. (coughs) This man's life was wrecked so that it could become a billboard displaying a megaphone heralding the glory of God's works and the grace of what only God can do. This is the testimony that Jesus gives and that the New Testament gives over and over again. The book of signs ends in John 11, and John 11 is the story of Jesus raising his friend Lazarus from the dead. And when news comes to Jesus that Lazarus has fallen ill and he's near the point of death, you know what Jesus says in John 11 verse 4? He says, this illness does not lead to death because it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. What did God say to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12? Paul's afflicted with a thorn in his flesh. He prays over and over again for God to take it away. And what does God say? My power is made perfect in your weakness. Do you believe that? Do you believe that's what your weakness and your suffering is for? The Bible says that God's, God uses this man's suffering and yours to put his glory and his amazing grace on display. Do you believe that God loves you that much? That he loves you so much that he will rescue you from your plans for your life so that he can add you into his better plan for your life. Do you believe that? This runs so counter to our cultural narrative, and it, it, infiltr- it infiltrates the church sometimes too. David Wells identifies the biggest problem in the church today is that God rests too inconsequentially upon us. Our vision of him is far too small. We view God as our sort of cosmic concierge who exists to take people who are awesome and make them even more awesome. We view God as our lifestyle designer who can take us from like a six to a nine. Make us look really good in what we post on Instagram. Make it look like we have it all together. But that's not who God is. He is much greater. And his love for you is far greater than for him to just be that to you. Sometimes he loves us so much that he is willing to wreck our lives so that our experience of suffering can be the means by which He displays His greater glory in us and to us. And this is a hard thing because it's hard for us to see that sometimes, isn't it? It's so much easier to see it in other people than it is to see it in ourselves. And this is, guys, this is such an apologetic for why community is so important. We need other people to help us see when we're in the midst of the struggle, we're in the midst of the weeds of difficult seasons of parenting, difficult seasons of singleness, seasons of struggle and and suffering. We need our brothers and sisters in Christ to come around us and say, I'm seeing the work of God displayed in you in this area. There is a precious, precious little girl in our church who has autism, and her, her daddy is a very dear friend of mine. Every time I see her, every time, whether it's here at church or out in the community or wherever, she yells, Pastor Josh, and runs up to me, gives me the biggest hug, and then just starts talking to me about whatever's on her mind in that moment until her mom or dad sort of shepherd her on to the next thing. I've just got to tell you, 
I look forward to seeing her. I look forward to those encounters. She's such a sweetheart. She's so encouraging to me. And it's such a privilege to be able to say to my friend who is walking this hard road, brother, I can see how your hard work's paying off. I can see how God is at work in your little girl. I see how he's at work in you in the midst of that. This is why we're constantly steering you toward things like community groups. So there's someone who has a perspective on your life that can help you see the work of God in the midst of your struggle. There are so many purposes that God has in our suffering in Scripture. We could take all sorts of time to just unfold all of them. He's producing endurance. He's teaching us to rely on the Lord and not ourselves. A hundred other things. But here's one thing we can absolutely count on when we suffer. God is at work to display His works in us and to us. And that's a good thing and a blessed thing. Unless you think that God only cares about displaying his work and not about our healing. We need to know this. Oh, we can't miss this. For the suffering Christian, the question is never if your suffering will end. The question is when. Do you understand this? It may not end in this life, but it will most certainly end in the next one. I love uh, the music of Sandra McCracken. We sing some of her songs uh, in worship on Sunday mornings, and she released a song recently that has this line that just, just caught me up short when I first heard it. Reflecting on this idea of our hope for restoration, she says, if this is not okay, then this is not the end. And this is not okay, so I know this is not the end. I don't know all the reasons that you're suffering today. I don't know what God has planned for you in the midst of that suffering, but I know this for sure, and I hope you know it too. One day, a trumpet blast is going to split the sky. The new Jerusalem, we're going to look up, and it's going to be coming down out of heaven as God establishes his new city here on earth. And on that day, At that trumpet blast, the dead are going to be raised to physical bodies that are glorified and incorruptible, bodies that will no longer be racked by things like sickness. There'll be no more sorrow. There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more tears, save for tears of utter, sheer joy and delight. On that day, cancer wards and operating rooms and occupational therapists' offices are going to sit empty for all of eternity. That day is your hope, Christian. It's your hope. And until that day comes, God is using you in love as a means of displaying His glorious works in you. And so it's going to be okay. And even if it has to not be okay for a little while, it's going to be okay. Verse 4, Jesus goes on. He says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, 
I am the light of the world. And having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. And he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. What a strange thing that is that Jesus did. I read a lot of commentaries on that this week. There's a lot of conjecture out there about what's the significance of this. Why did that, what was like the magical power in that mud? Some people think that Jesus' spit had some sort of healing properties, like a kind of a first century essential oil or something like that. (laughs) Some say that Jesus is mimicking uh, God's creation of the first man by putting his hands in in the dirt, signifying the making of a new creation. And those are interesting ideas. But I think, I think the point, I think the reason Jesus heals him in this way is so that he can ensure that he won't be able to see who's healed him. Because he has a greater healing he wants to do in this man. Stay with me on this for just a second. Think about how this went. With the mud on his eyes, the blind man is told to go to the pool. Now, why is this hard? He's still blind. So the pool of Siloam, it's not far away, but he can't see. So he has to make his way in the dark to the pool if he's going to obey Jesus and trust Jesus at his word. And it was a hard journey, however long it was. And Jesus is bringing about physical healing, but he's doing it in a way that's going to bring about spiritual healing as well. He's bringing about and building faith into this man. He's teaching him to trust. And don't miss this, guys. When we're suffering and we don't understand what God is doing, the very best thing we can do is to obey in the dark and wait. And sometimes that's a very difficult thing to do. But we can know that as we wait, as we wander in the dark, we can know God is building in us a faith that will endure. That's what we're going to see in this man as the story unfolds, your suffering is a means by which God is going to display his glory and his works in and through you. So let Jesus reinterpret your suffering. That's invitation number one. Invitation number two, and we'll move more quickly to these last two. Respond rightly to the word and works of God. This man goes home and he begins to cause quite a stir. With the fact that he is now able to see, word spreads quickly in his neighborhood, and they end up bringing this man to the Pharisees. And we should not uh, read any malice into this. I know we have a pretty, pretty blinkered view of the Pharisees. We think they're bad news, and they are. Uh, but in this day, uh, they, would, they would have gone to the religious leaders when an extraordinary event like this healing took place to get them to comment on this. That would have been very common in that day for the religious leaders to give commentary on something extraordinary that happens. In our day, we look to politicians and celebrities and, God help us, cable news for our commentary on these things, but that's another sermon for another day. In verse 14, we get a new piece of information. This healing took place on the Sabbath. And if you've been tracking as we've been going through John's gospel, you hear that and you say, "Uh uh-oh, that's going to be a problem. And you're right, it is a problem. Because the fiery outrage that Jesus has incited in the Pharisees in chapters 7 and 8 is going to be dialed up a few degrees hotter. Because in the Pharisees' view, 
There's at least three ways in which Jesus has violated the oral tradition of the law concerning the Sabbath. He has healed a man, not allowed on the Sabbath according to the tradition. He has worked the ground, making mud. He has anointed a man's eyes to heal him. All not allowed on the Sabbath according to their oral tradition. And if you hear that and that sounds suspicious to you, it's because it is. It is. Jesus knows that their Sabbath interpretation is overly narrow, it's legalistic, and he is happy throughout the Gospels to provoke them on this issue of Sabbath-keeping. In fact, it's one of the primary reasons he ends up going to his death. So this controversy has been stirred up. They assemble an investigative task force, and they go to interrogate this man and hear his story. And as he's explaining what Jesus has done and what's happened to him, two factions emerge Among the Pharisees, we see in verse 16, on one hand, you have the group that says, he can't be from God, he breaks the Sabbath. It's as easy as that. On the other side, you've got the other group that says, well, how can Jesus Jesus do these things if he isn't from God? These things don't go together. Things aren't adding up. And so they got to do more investigating. They go to interrogate his parents. His parents verify the facts of the story. We know he's our son. We know he was born blind. We know that he sees now. If you want anything else, you got to go talk to him. He's of age. They refuse to say more because they are terrified of the Pharisees. And we're going to see in just a minute that it is for good reason. Pharisees go back to this man at this point. Their patience for this entire exercise has pretty much been exhausted. And they say in verse 24, Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. Now give glory to God. Sounds nice, right? Sounds like a sounds like a positive sort of statement. But this is kind of like when you smart off to your mom in public and she says, "You want to try saying that one more time?" Right? It's like, "That sounds like a nice thing. She's giving me another chance." What she's really doing is threatening violence, right? You've been there. Well, that's exactly what they're doing. They're threatening violence against this man. This is the same warning that Joshua gave Achan in Joshua chapter 7. Remember, they were on a raid. Achan stole a bunch of treasure and hid it in his tent. Joshua goes to him and says, give glory to God. Tell the truth about yourself. And that's what they're saying to this man. They're saying, knock off the charade before God. Tell us the truth about who this man is. And he responds. Powerful testimony. Verse 25. Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. Remember, he's never seen the man at this point. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. He testifies to the work of Christ. Guys, we should never underestimate the power that God's work in your life can have as you tell the truth about yourself to other people. You might feel profoundly inequipped to share the gospel with someone. Well, I don't have all the apologetics down. I've got to watch some more YouTube lectures. I can't answer every objection. Lead with the truth of what God has done for you. What a powerful way to start that conversation. Here's what God has done for me. Can I tell you about Jesus Christ? The Pharisees aren't having it, though. They keep pushing him. They ask him more of the same questions. I love what he says in verse 27. I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? It's amazing. We don't have enough information in the context to know whether he's speaking with kind of a beautiful sincerity or a sharp rebuke. 
But in either case, he speaks with great power to these intimidating religious leaders who are, by the way, absolutely transgressing their spiritual authority right now. And they quite simply explode. Verse 28 says, they reviled him. They cast him out of the temple. And that is not, that's not merely physically removing him. That is excommunicating him. That is setting him outside of the covenant community. This man who was never welcomed as a part of that community to begin with because of his blindness. These men who have never done anything for this man. The wickedness of these leaders, this misuse of their authority is astonishing. And it's a portrait to us of the truth that the gospel will be the fragrance of life to some, but it will be the stench of death to others. Perhaps you've heard the expression, the same sun that melts the ice also hardens the clay. The same gospel message that will melt the heart of some sinners and draw them to repentance will only harden others. But make no mistake, everyone will respond to the word and the works of God. And the question before us is, will we respond with obedience and a willingness to testify to who he is like the man born blind, even when it's costly to us? Or will we reject his message like the Pharisees did and like they will continue to do? Second invitation is to respond rightly to the word and the works of God. Third and finally, the invitation is to turn from the pride that blinds. For his testimony, the man born blind experiences alienation, social dislocation, the very fate that his parents were seeking to avoid. He is cast out. He becomes an object of scorn to the people around him. And in a sense, he's right back to where he started when the whole narrative begins. He is rejected. He is an outcast. He is a person of no consequence, with no community, and no hope. But Jesus sees him again. I love the tenderness of Jesus. Verse 45, he seeks this man out. The good shepherd goes after the lost sheep from the house of Israel. And when he finds him, he puts a question to him. He says, do you believe in the Son of Man? He uses the Old Testament name for the Messiah that he loves to take for himself from Daniel chapter 7. And just imagine for a second you're this man. You hear this invitation and you're looking at the face of Jesus for the first time. The man who healed you. He says, who is he, sir? that I might believe in him. In the beautiful words of Jesus in verse 37, you have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. That's why I gave you your sight. This was never just about physical sight. It was about spiritual sight. It was about having the eyes of your heart enlightened so that you'd be able to stand here and not only see the man who's healed you, but to see the Messiah who bears your iniquity and heals your diseases. He responds, verse 38, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. It's worth noting that this is the only place in John's gospel where anyone is said to worship Jesus. 
Do you see what's happened here? He's been given physical eyes to see Jesus and spiritual eyes to see the reality of who he is. This is what John is talking about in the prologue to this book. In chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's what happens when you're given the gift of spiritual sight. We see his glory. That's what this whole story is about. Jesus is the light of the world. He's the one who gives sight to those who are born spiritually blind. He transforms them. He gives them a hope. He makes them witnesses and worshipers. But not everyone who hears it receives it. The story ends on a very sober and sobering note. Verse 39, Jesus says, For judgment I came into the world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Here's the point Jesus is making. The light of the world opens the eyes of those who are desperate for it. And it closes the eyes of those who deny their need for it. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you only knew, Pharisees, how desperately blind you actually are, I could heal you, I could give you sight. But you're so sure of how little you need me that even when the light shines in your eyes, it only makes you more blind. There is only one sin that finds no remedy in the gospel. And it is the spiritual pride that claims to see while remaining in darkness. So we have to ask this morning, how are you responding to the only cure that is offered for the blindness that you have experienced since birth? Are you seeing Jesus for who He is this morning? A few questions to ask yourself just as a diagnostic. Do you live with an awareness of your urgent need for the sight that Jesus gives, not just for conversion, but to make it as a Christian? Do you read the Scriptures with expectancy, seeing it as a, as a light for your path? Do you see Jesus' love and His words and His promises and His presence as as water to your soul? What happens when you come into this place on the Lord's day and the liturgy calls on you to confess your sin? Do you have anything to say? Do you have any sin to confess? Do you see that as an opportunity to throw yourself in a fresh way on the consolations and the forgiveness and the grace that's yours in Jesus Christ. I ask you again, with whom do you identify in this story? Are you the blind beggar or the buttoned-up religious person? I want to take you back to Jesus' first encounter with this man. Imagine being this man, standing there in a crowd. Jesus is there. His disciples are there. A crowd is probably gathered around. Jesus has just, you've heard him spit and fiddle around in the dirt. You felt him wipe the mud on your eyes. And now he's telling you to go wash in the pool. 
Imagine yourself there for a moment. How foolish must that have sounded to him? How foolish must that have sounded to his disciples and to the crowds standing by? We're ready for Jesus to like pull out some anointing oil and use that or to pray to the Father, but we're not ready for him to do this. But remember what 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And even when the gospel feels like foolishness, we believe the spit and the mud that Jesus gives, it's better than any plans for self-improvement we could come up with in our own wisdom. Amen? And we can trust that when suffering comes in to our lives, God is using that for redemptive purposes, using it to awaken us to our desperate need of him. Like C.S. Lewis says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And he loves you enough to send suffering into your life to awaken you to how much you need him. One of my spiritual heroes is Johnny Erickson Tata. Many of you probably know her story. When she was a teenager, she dove into Chesapeake Bay, tragically not realizing how shallow the water was, and became a quadriplegic. And if you want to know, if you want to see a portrait of how the works of God have been displayed gloriously in a person's suffering, I can't think of a better example than Johnny Erickson Tata. She's been able to comfort and encourage and preach the gospel to countless adults and children with special needs through her ministry, Johnny and Friends. She's been able to proclaim the sufficiency of Christ all over the world. And in the book, Suffering in the Sovereignty of God, she talks about her experience of how God met her and her desperation in the hospital room after her accident. But what really caught my attention was what she said about her life after the hospital room. She says, I didn't just leave my desperation back there in the hospital. No, desperation is part of a quadriplegic's life each and every day. For me, suffering is still that jackhammer breaking apart my rocks of resistance every day. It is still the chisel that God is using to chip away at my self-sufficiency and my self-motivation and my self-consumption. Suffering is still that sheepdog snapping and barking at my heels driving me down the road to Calvary where I other not, otherwise would not want to go. But it is at Calvary, at the cross, where I meet suffering on God's terms. Here's the question that John 9 puts before us. Do you know how desperate you really are? Because here's my fear. My fear for you and for me and for comfortable, middle-class, northeast Tallahassee church folk is that we will miss out on the beauty of Jesus, not because we're so broken, but because we're so well put together. You've got to know that the depth of your need is never what keeps you from Jesus. It is always your self-sufficiency. It is not your weakness that blinds you to the light of the world. It is your strength. 
In that same essay, Johnny Erickson taught us, says, do you know who the truly handicapped people are? They're the ones, and many of them are Christians, who hear the alarm clock go off at 7.30, throw back the covers, jump out of bed, take a quick shower, choke down breakfast, and zoom out the front door, doing all of this on autopilot without stopping once to acknowledge their Creator, their great God who gives them life and strength each day. James 4.6 says that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Christian, if you live this way, do you know that God opposes you? It'll cost you one thing to come to Jesus, and that is your pride. The gospel will transform you. It will bring joy and healing to the broken places in your life. It will give you hope in the dark night of the soul. It will put you back together again. But only if it's not too far beneath you. What will you do with the only remedy God has provided for your spiritual blindness. Repent, not just of your sin, but of your self-sufficiency, of your self-righteousness, and come to Jesus, the one who gives sight to the blind. Let's pray. Jesus, you say in your word, Through the prophet Isaiah, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the strong man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me.